So, Paul, we have some exciting news. Well, indeed. We have been informed that Christiana and Tom's brilliant book, The Future We Choose, has made it to the final round of the Goodreads Best Books of 2020. And this is an award decided by readers. Oh, okay. So the book, yeah, exactly. So <laughs> you know where we're coming from. Right, yeah. So the book now needs your vote. How do we do it? Okay, so we're inviting our listeners to vote for The Future We Choose at goodreads.com slash choice awards. Then click on the science and technology category, and that's where you'll find The Future We Choose. Vote for the book there. The link is in the show notes. I got you. Great. Thank you. And now on with the show. Welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivik Karnak. I'm Christiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. This week we discuss Paul's dream. Yes, we do. My dream, my dream. My dream is like all the corporations in the world get together and kind of adopt the responsibilities of government and the investors do it as well and it's fantastic and it all comes together and they deliver the SDGs and we all live happily ever after. <laughs> Plus we speak to Sander Ojambo, the CEO of the UN Global Compact and we have music from Gaia. Thanks for being here. So one of the great things about this podcast is that I get to sit and chat with both of you each week and we get a chance to think about what we want to talk about, what are the biggest issues mm. of the week. But one of the bad things about the sort of the Death Star that is the US election is now in the aftermath of it, it feels like we've entered this period of calm, which is wonderful. But I don't think we've had a chance to think about what we're going to talk about on the podcast this week. So what do you guys want to talk about? Well, I mean, just thinking about that period of calm after four intolerable years, what about like just 10 minutes of just silence where we all kind of, you know, zone in to the fact that we have a new president coming in and the world's going in the right direction? Just that, an idea. That is a good idea. Or, or relaxing and uplifting music. Christiane doesn't need that, of course, because she lives at the beach and she just looks at the ocean. Well, I actually have a Costa Rica announcement for you. Costa Rica. <laughs> Costa Rica. We haven't talked about Costa Rica in a while. Go for it. We haven't talked about Costa Rica in a while. So, If you um, get sponsorship from the Costa Rican Department of Tourism, you do know you have to declare that, don't you, in this podcast? And share the money and the holidays and the, and the fruit. Yes. Well, we haven't quite got there yet. Okay. Because okay. actually what I want to share with you all is actually quite disappointing news in Costa Rica. Ooh. Oh, surprising. So like many other countries, especially developing countries, we're in a serious deficit situation here mm -hmm. uh, caused, among other things, by COVID, just that COVID caught us, I would say, particularly unprepared uh, for a crisis like that. And sadly, very sadly, there are some voices that are beginning to uh, suggest that the way to bring fast and easy income to the government is um, oil and gas exploration. Ooh. Oil and gas exploration. How, <laughs> how do you put that idea together with the fact that we are globally decreasing our demand of oil um, and increasingly also uh, actually uh, going into a lower demand for gas, but certainly for oil with all our electrification that we've been talking about in the podcast in some of these episodes. But also, how do you bring that together with the image of Costa Rica, with who Costa Rica has been for decades? All our, you know, green tourism, our biodiversity destination. 
How on earth do you bring those two things together? So, so is this government policy now in Costa Rica, or is it? No, 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 okay. no, no, no. It's not government policy. No, what we currently have is we have a law that um, establishes a moratorium on oil and gas exploration. Okay. Um, but that's just a moratorium that can be turned over. And there were quite a few of us that were actually advocating for a law that prohibits oil and gas exploration. And in the middle of this comes uh, this brilliant idea on the part of some that we should um, have fast and easy income by uh, drilling here for oil and gas. So it, it's just, uh, honestly, I feel like it's a dagger in my heart, right? Um, and it's a dagger in the heart of the country, not just mine. So here I am, having promised that I would keep a very, very low profile in my home country for many different reasons, having now to... Um, if, hang on, if, if this is going to be Christiana Figueres' declaration of a run for the presidency in Costa Rica, I think we're going to have to have a drum no. roll before you... Oh, it's not. Okay, sorry, right? No. Yeah. Oh, no. yes, Definitely. it is. <laughs> no, 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 no. Like in a pantomime. No, oh, but it, yes, but it, it is. is. No, no, no. But it is a declaration that um, I will be joining a campaign against these voices that are calling for oil and gas exploration. Anyway, that's just to balance out how many times have I been on this podcast singing the praises of Costa Rica. So just so that you know that we have optimism, but we also have outrage in Costa Rica. There you are. What about Costa Rica becoming a country that's a kind of museum of industries? So you, you build this oil and gas, you link it up with like typewriter, manufacturing, films, you know, the, the, uh, photocopiers, you know, there's a whole Kodak. bunch of technologies. Exactly. It could be, it could be kind of like go back to the, to the 20th century in Costa Rica, enjoy nature and things that people don't do anymore. That's a brilliant <laughs> suggestion. I think I will t make that the cornerstone of our campaign. Costa Rica, the museum of things people don't do anymore. I, mean, I reckon that they might come up with something better than that. You know what, though? It's funny you should mention how the, 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 that's going in Costa Rica, because I don't know if you've heard, but Paul and I are from the UK, and actually something quite impressive happened in the UK. It's very rare that we get to say something which positions the UK environmentally above Costa Rica. So we need to enjoy Oh, this. no. Is this the moment when I should turn off? God I'm turning my recording off. Gracious so, queen. So yes. One, one of the things that happened this week is Boris Johnson came out with his 10-point plan for a green industrial revolution. And interestingly, I mean, one of the places where I get some of my news from is Business Green, um, which I think is a, a brilliant outlet. James Murray is a great writer. And he said that it's the first time in his estimation that a world leader has not just talked about the desire to bring down the curtain on the fossil fuel age within three decades, but it has explained in real detail how he intends to do it. The 10-point plan includes things like ending sales for the internal combustion engine by 2030, creating a quarter of a million jobs in green energy. It's really quite impressive. And, you know, critics have looked at it and said it includes pledges for new funding, a significant proportion of which, of course, is repackaged from previous commitments. But there is some new money there. But I think what's interesting is it demonstrates, I mean, I don't know what you guys took from it, but what I took from it is that with the best will in the world, the current Prime Minister of the UK is a political opportunist, right? He does what he needs to do in order to get the political momentum of the moment. And I think that it's no accident that this comes out now. With new Biden administration coming in, realisation that climate change is the way that he builds bridges with the world, 
with which he has in large part burnt bridges, if you think about Brexit and some of the relationships he's had with Trump. But he sees climate change as a way back to establish good relationships with others and how the UK can burnish its credentials as a global leader in the 21st century. And that's great, right? If those things start to align. And as the host of COP26, not the that host we should of forget COP26, that. But if those things start to align, if the national political interest and reducing emissions and creating a resilient world align politically... I'll take that. That's good news. That's exactly the way it should be. Yeah. <laughs> it was reported, uh, you know, he had a famous fallout with his principal kind of advisor, Dominic Cummings. And there was a suggestion, and this is all kind of hearsay, so so you can't take it to court, but there was a suggestion that Cummings was was predicting that this would not play so well with certain people in certain districts of the UK that, you know, may not be feel themselves to be part of this kind of decarbonisation revolution. Cummings was actually the architect of Brexit, uh, which actually I think, you know, who knows if the UK will come to regret. So there is a bit of a question about the narrative and how we can make sure together that the narrative of jobs and opportunity manifests itself in, in real industries where people feel, you know, in their pockets richer as a result of this decarbonisation. I know it can be done, but it's it's got it's to have the right story behind it. But your mention there of story is interesting. So, I mean, you know, it's no secret that I and and probably Paul and, and certainly Christiana were not fans of Brexit. Um, but one of them, the moment when I thought that Brexit were going to win was I saw Nigel Farage on TV like two months before the Brexit vote and he was being questioned by someone and they said, oh, but Brexit is going to be bad for the economy and what about this? And he said, who cares about that? This is about identity. This is about our story as a country. And wow. I thought, oh my God, he's going to win. Because actually that's more powerful than appealing to people and trying to frighten them. I'm not saying that the the, the, the Remain campaign was all about frightening. It had some very good arguments behind it, uh, as we're now realising. But actually that need for a new story, which Paul, I think you've thought about this, that Ben Rhodes talked about, is arguably behind what's in this Boris Johnson 10-point plan. Yeah, I mean, just to remind people about this incredible interview we have with Ben Rhodes, where he said, the USA needs a mission. And, and actually decarbonizing and responding to climate change could be that mission. And I, I think that notion that we need a kind of national purpose that we can articulate and feel proud about, have identity around, does have some meaning. But neither you or I, Tom, have ever been in politics, whereas, Christiana, you've spent all your life with politicians. Would you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, obviously, we need um, stories are, are very um, powerful. And for people, it's much easier, A, to understand and certainly to remember um, a story than to remember facts, hard data. Um, but here's a story that is fundamented in facts. So I don't know if you two know, but uh, when I lived in London, I used to follow a Twitter account that is uh, called MyGridGB. And they publish every so often what the grid of Britain is actually looking like. The grid as in the power grid, like what's the mix of power creation? The power grid, yeah. Okay, what, yeah. What, what, what fuels are producing electricity in Britain? And so I just looked it up as you were talking. And so here's the story that just went up 10 minutes ago on MyGridGB, highly recommended for you to follow this. It says, there have been approximately 4,883 hours, approximately, right? 4,883 <laughs> hours. Minute here, minute there. Yeah, a yeah, minute here, minute there. Of coal-free British electricity so far in 2020. Coal has provided just 2.1% of British electricity over the last 12 months. Wow. 
I mean, if if there is a story of a country that has decarbonized, certainly away from coal, but now from Boris Johnson hearing the beginning of the story of the next chapter away from oil, that is, I mean, it's it's fantastic. It's fantastic to see that we are at that point in which um, that national interest and the strength of the economy really is being fundamentally understood to be fully aligned with the global need and with climate science. Because as long as we've talked about this ad nauseum on the podcast, as long as those two are seen to be competing with each other, I think we know which would win. But the fact that it is being increasingly understood that those two actually are aligned and um, are mutually reinforcing is just so refreshing. And I think we'll be seeing many of these stories and many of these coming certainly from the United States, but increasingly from other countries. I think 2020 is going to be the turning point for this, of understanding that uh, that addressing climate change continues to be a responsibility, but we're moving from the burden to the opportunity. Well, let me throw in a, a little a fact, maybe a big fact, actually, that kind of supports everything you just said, Christiana. I mean, like anyone who's worked in climate change for a while will have looked at that graph of where energy comes from, you know, British thermal units or BTUs or whatever they're called. And you can you can normalize them against everything, nuclear, renewables, coal, oil and gas. And certainly when I used to look at that in my first, you know, last 10 years or whatever, you'd see these giant sections, coal, oil and gas, they were huge. And then just a few slithers for nuclear and renewables. Now, get this, the International Energy Agency, whose job is to know about this, have just announced that solar and wind capacity will overtake gas capacity by 2023, which nearly anyone in business will tell you is basically tomorrow. So that's the message to those Costa Rican policymakers, I'm afraid, Christiana, uh, if you're going to leave it to them and not take over the country yourself, which is our recommendation, that Really, fundamentally, um, the, the mathematics is changing at a deep level. Um, renewables totally. are accelerating. And it was Nigel, our, our, our dear friend, Nigel Topping, who says, you know, if something's kind of very small, but it's doubling every year, look out. Well, and I think it's it's also the IEA who has uh, put a new spin on the term uh, King Cole, right? They're now talking about solar as being uh, the king of power. A uh, very interesting turn of uh, of events there. It's, it reminds me of that old quote about how you go bankrupt, right? Which is the joke, which is that you go bankrupt first very slowly and then very fast. And actually, for a long time, sort of solar and wind and renewables seemed to be kind of nowhere, right? They were bumping on the bottom. I mean, my family all works in oil and gas. You know, it was always a bit of a joke about the fact that it wasn't really anywhere. Then all of a sudden, boom, it's everywhere and actually will become the predominant energy source in the world in just a few years. Um Amazing, amazing progress. Now, uh, one person who actually has a very important role in this is Sanda Ojambo, who is the executive director and CEO of the United Nations Global Compact. Are we ready to pivot to the interview? Well, yes, because, I mean, uh, Christiana may have something else she wants to say, but I just want to say that I think that Global Compact is this fantastic organisation. All these corporations all kind of together under the auspices of the United Nations. And it's kind of like, I feel like I kind of sort of woke up from this brilliant dream and there was the Global Compact. There it was. So so as far as I know, Paul Dickinson's wet dream has always been a kind of united corporations to go along yes, with the United has, Nations. Yes, has, that that's right? exactly and it. the Global Compact is basically it. It exists. <laughs> Sorry, yes. Very excited. Okay, to talk so to very excited. Sander, so, very do you excited. want to introduce what the Global Compact is before I introduce Sander? 
Well, I would say it is a, an extraordinary initiative that brings together 10,000 corporations now to focus their energies on delivering the sustainable development goals. And, From and how taking many countries? Quiz. All of them, I'm guessing. 160, not bad. Okay, well, sorry, carry on. How many country networks? Yeah. Where are we yeah, quizzing how many country networks? Just, just uh, people who are listening. Yeah. Tom's got like a piece of information in front of him and I'm doing this from sort of memory and from my heart. How many universal principles would you say that they promote? All of them. <laughs> all of the universal principles, all the important ones. The answer is 10, Paul. They promote 10 universal ten, principles. Ten, yeah. 10 important yeah. universal principles. <laughs> Sorry, carry on. Well, suffice to say that um, <laughs> the promise they have is to be able to sort of bring the dignity of the of of the nation state to the corporation, to allow corporations to sort of, uh, as it were, stand shoulder to shoulder and together do the work of bringing our society forward to where it needs to go, dealing with the economic and the social system conditions and all the SDGs. And I just think it's a fantastic way for us to kind of reinvent our 21st century, whilst it's still only a fifth old... <laughs> So, so, Paul, here's the next quiz question. Which is actually the largest voluntary corporate sustainability initiative in the world? That's what I was going to ask. That's what I was going to ask. I'm going to go for the UN Global Compact. Wow. You Look got at that. it. <laughs> Although there are some other interesting collaborations. Like CDP, but no, so, absolutely. The, the, the UN Global <laughs> Compact is, is a fantastic. So, anyway, moving on to the introduction Tom, of Sanders. if you'd like to complete the process. <laughs> so, Paul... Thank you for that generous and thoughtful introduction to the Global Compact. Now, Sandra herself, the Executive Director and CEO of the United Nations Global Compact, is the second woman to be appointed. Who, wait, wait, wait. Who has just arrived in New York like a week ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Totally. Appointed in June 2020, of course. But, but had to work out of Kenya and well, has just arrived in New York, probably still living out of boxes. Attentive listeners will realise that was during the first lockdown. Absolutely. Only just arrived. Uh, the first African citizen to be appointed to the post. Um, herself since 2010 she serves as the head of sustainable business and social impact at African telecoms company Safaricom in Kenya and was the senior manager of Safaricom before that before she made her transition to corporate sustainability she worked for NGOs across Africa addressing the issues of inequality and discrimination she is as you're about to hear a remarkable and inspiring and thoughtful leader and personally I feel and I expect my co-host would agree that she is going to have an enormous impact at the UN Global mm. Compact. So here we go. Here's Sander and we will be back afterwards with more thoughts and analysis. Um, Sander, how wonderful to have you. Welcome to um, Outrage and Optimism. Um, Sander, you know, some of our listeners may not even have a clue of what the Global Compact is. So I would love for you to explain a little bit about the Global Compact, but um, I just wanted to give it a little bit of a context because, first of all, you took the job, and I really want to know why did you take the job, but then you weren't able to move to New York, and you had to stay at home in Kenya and sort of remotely control an entire organization in New York <laughs> that I presume you had actually never met how was it to start a completely new job via Zoom, I presume, or at least via remote control? 
Great. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on here, uh, Paul, Tom and, and Christiana. Just really great to be here and have have this conversation. You know, when you ask about why I took this job, so, you know, I, my first instinct was to say it was a persistent headhunter, but, but let me not give him all the credit. Well, there you go. There's truth for you. <laughs> there's, yeah, there, there are some, some very well-paid persistent headhunters, but, you know, I was also at a point of reflection in my life. Um, I, I tend to, to do this, this thing around my career where every five years I sort of ask myself, it's been five years, what does the next five look like What's or is next? it time to ship out yeah. or, you know, shape up mm. and ship out? You know, so I do this renewal every five years. But, you know, 12 years ago, I, I broke that five-year rule. It's a, it's a very healthy behavior. May I congratulate you for that behavior? It's very healthy. It's not, not very traditional inside the UN, if I can venture that. <laughs> well, huh, I'm yet to find out. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, so, but I broke I broke this rule because 12 years ago, I joined a fantastic organization in Kenya that really had at its heart what I think the Global Compact does, mm. which is using business to transform society. Yeah. So I, I come from, from uh, you know, a previous role in the telco sector where I drove sustainability. You know, how do businesses look at sustainability? How do businesses impact more than simply their customers with that transactional sale? So, you know, 12 years hit. And I was like, oh, I've missed five years. You know, I missed five. I missed five plus five. And I'm on to, you know, two. And a great time for reflection. And so it just coincided with, with a job vacancy, um, a headhunter, and my reflection moment. And I'll, I'll, be, I'll be very honest. That was it. This was one of those things where I think the, the, the ducks were lined up, the stars were aligned. And the I universe was a, calling. Uh, the universe was calling and I, I kicked off actually probably about a seven-month conversation uh, on a recruitment process around joining joining the UN Global Compact. So that, that, that's why I'm here. Did you know much about the Compact before you joined? Yeah. Were you very familiar with the Global Compact? Actually, I was because, you know, part of those 12 years that I talk about, 10 of the 12, um, I had led uh, the portfolio in a company that was one of the UN Global Compact members. So to be very honest, I knew this organization, but I knew it from the outside. So I knew what it stood for. I knew what it was trying to achieve. Uh, I love it that I knew probably about a third of the team even before I joined. Um, I got to know how aggressive and, and follow th- how big they are and follow through from the outside even before I knew them. But um, so I knew the organization. I knew what it stood for. I knew its positioning. Every year for the last seven or so years, I would come to New York for the General Assembly Week. That's a big week when, you know, people come together to really review progress on some of the UN big goals. Right. And so it wasn't an alien organization to me, but I had seen it from the outside. And I was going to be deep in the inside and leading it. Now, that tells me, Sandra, that that, therefore, Safaricom would have been one of the active members of Global Compact. The Global Compact has almost 12,000 companies. I would venture to say that they're not all active in the Global Compact. Um, And how delightful that that Safaricom was via you, and therefore you... uh, you got to know the global compact and and the all female team uh, that was um, that was running it. Um, now that you are there, because I think you're finally in New York. Now that you are there, what have you found that um, surprises you in the sense of 
this ain't good enough. This really has to change under my um, under my leadership. Where what what is your vision for transformation? Yeah, um, great. And as as you do acknowledge, you know, where I worked at Force Frycom was one of the active members, and and that's true. And it, it really, you know, we weren't perfect. I think we were doing well, um, you know, as an African company. Now, now that I'm here, but you know, Christian, Christian, you say now that I'm here, you know, I'm here in a very strange time. You know, I'm sitting in my office today. I come really, in. I hadn't noticed that. <laughs> you, you you didn't think so? No, <laughs> why, no why idea just, what you're talking about. about so I'm sitting in my office here, and um, it's uh, it's Thursday, right? It's Thursday. I think yeah. there's four colleagues in the office. Um, I come in, you know, one or two days a week. Uh, I moved to New York about five weeks ago, and um, so it's it's very hard to 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 speak about what is and what what you know what the status quo is because yeah. I I don't know when I'll get that chance right. to be with my team fully to to see what the vibe is, to see this, you know, it's a lovely office, but I think it holds about 100 people. I don't know when I'll see these 100 people together. I got the chance to meet them on Zoom. I think we meet every two weeks on Zoom. Um, and the energy comes through. But there's so many things that you miss. You miss empathy. You miss connection. Sure. You probably don't joke the way that you would. We don't have the around the coffee machine banter. Um, you can just tap someone and say, hey, let's go out for lunch and quickly brainstorm an idea. So certainly there's a lot of dynamics that are missing. I, I get that you can do a lot online and virtually. Um, but but I, I miss that. So that that's a unique challenge. Um but certainly joining, and I mean, you 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 mentioned one of those, which is we have a very large membership. You know, my question is first: Are we giving suitable and equal value to that entire membership? Um, because that's, I think, what would spur levels of activity and engagement in in the work that we do. So my first question is: Now that I have, we have this membership of close to fourteen thousand. There's eleven thousand businesses and three thousand non-businesses. What are we doing with them? What's mm -hmm. our level of engagement? Mm -hmm. What's the value creation that we have mm -hmm. for them? And what value do they get from us is, is, a, is a question that I really do want to interrogate mm -hmm. really well. As so happens with the role, I mean, I come in at a time when I need to develop the new strategy going forward. So we are working on, on that right now to just clarify what the global compact will be for our next mm -hmm. chapter going forward. And I think that's a great opportunity to to address what we feel could work better um, to also actually because everything has just been so unprecedented this year. Maybe it's time to just make unprecedented changes and and see what the global compact can do. There you go. I'm going forward. Like that. I like that. <laughs> everything is possible. Everything. Everything is possible. Uh, okay, Sandra. So I've I've been watching uh, like these these tough news programs. So I'm, I'm going to hit you with the really tough questions. I mean, just to, to give you a little bit of background, I did write a book okay. called Beautiful Corporations. So you've got to figure out yourself. You kind of know where I'm coming from here. So right. I I put it to you that all leading businesses should join. The, the global compact. Will you agree? I would. Could you help me? Could you could you help me get them all on board, please? That's the Dickinson line of tough questioning. That's, that's the tough question. I'm going to follow up though. I got to follow up because I think I've got you on the ropes here a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. Would you agree that all leading companies that manage to successfully join the global compact should be active in the global compact? They must. That, well, there you they go. Well, then, so, I mean, in all seriousness, I, I really admire your organization. I, I, I'm fascinated and excited by the idea that business can evolve from its kind of like, you know, 
historically it's been, you know, sort of without a, a, a kind of purpose above and beyond its, its product or service. Can I, can I ask you, how do you see business sort of in society over the next 10 years, even over the next 100 years? Yeah, so I, I believe in this concept called the three Ps. Actually, there's probably four Ps. So, let me, you know, over time, my thinking has evolved on this four Ps. So, you first have to be clear on your purpose. Hmm, okay. Yeah, so, business purpose is, is central. Then you've got to be able to define the principles by which you're going to execute or live through your purpose. Because purpose runs the risk of being very sort of esoteric and up there. But you can ground it in principles in ways that you're going to be. Mm-hmm. Then you need to have people who are really aligned to what that, you know, what that purpose and principle is going to be. And I firmly believe that thereafter the profit will follow. Mm. But I think it's going to be in that order. You know, if you put any in any other configuration, in my view, and this is my business theory, it, it doesn't work out to the end that you want. I firmly believe that purpose and profit can and should coexist, but you've got to be able to look at putting your purpose first and understanding what it is that you're here to do. And can I ask a tiny follow-on question? I mean, in your in your previous work uh, at a very successful company doing fascinating things with the dematerialization of growth and financial services and telecoms, I mean, it's just an amazing story. But how did you find, uh, what, what was your experience of identifying purpose within that company? And how did, how did it manifest? Just because we've got, you know, thousands of listeners who work in businesses, and if they want to find their own relationship to, to purpose, what's the root? Yeah, so, you know, I'd, I'd love to take full credit for this, but allow me to just recognize my former CEO and leader who was a fantastic guy, Bob Collymore. Um, mm. Bob was a, he was just an amazing and astute, uh, purpose-led man, most authentic guy that I know. So, you know, first of all, I worked in telco. Telco is not one of the most loved industries around the world um, for a number of reasons. But, you know, Bob joined Safaricom and challenged us because he said, look, beyond data, SMS and voice, what are you selling? What are you selling to customers? And once they're connected to you, then what? You've got to have value that is bigger than the transactional exchange that you're going to offer your customers. Otherwise, one day they're with you, one day they're someone. It's kind of like serial dating, you know? They'll be with you, they'll be with someone else, they'll be with someone else because they're not no getting... No loyalty. No loyalty, no value. You know, at some point, everyone prices out the same, right? So Bob's challenge to us was to really think about the transformation that as a business we wanted to cause for society. And so in my former organization, when you walked into the office, you never saw anything that would indicate we're telco. We never spoke data. You wouldn't see a signage about pricing or a bundle or anything. What you would see was our purpose, which was transforming lives. You would see indications around our sustainability goals. And you'd see a team that was looking at telco to the extent that telco could influence agriculture, could influence health, Mm. could influence education. Uh, A team that was looking at how we could have cleaner, greener operations in-house. A team that was committed to fighting uh, corruption as best as it could Mm. within the organization and its ecosystem. A team that engaged its supply chain in sharing the same principles um, across the board. And so that's the environment in which I work. That's the environment that that made us a, a great partnership with the UN Global Compact. Mm-hmm. And that's really what, you know, our view then was. And, you know, things like financial inclusion then become second nature because you're not going to have a customer if the lady that you're serving just is not able to, you know, access some form of financial inclusion. She mm-hmm. definitely will not have the paperwork to walk into a bank like you and I would. She definitely won't have a, an ATM card or a cash point card. But if she can save her money on her mobile phone and do a transaction, that's empowering. 
that's inclusive. And, and that those are the kind of very micro changes that I think businesses need to look at. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's what I say, purpose, principles, get it going and the profits will come. I mean, admittedly, so I, I, I don't know if I told you, but I, you know, I come from Kenya. I worked in Nairobi, Kenya. And, you know, obviously the socioeconomic uh, environment and therefore the opportunities are immense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for me, I look at my continent of one full filled with opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people see it as one filled with, you know, risk. I, I see opportunity at every corner because there's, there's, there's enough problems, enough challenges to create fantastic, innovative solutions. Mm. And I think that's what my former company, Safaricom, mm. did. That's such a beautiful vision of like purpose as the driving force behind business and profit as an outcome of that. But let me just sort of go back to, because in a funny way, you know, if you look at the history, the existence of the Global Compact wasn't always assured, right? I mean, you know, back to the founding of the UN, the world's nations coming together to solve big problems. You know, the famous quote at the beginning that it wasn't to to deliver us to heaven, but to save us from hell. And then as time's gone on, you know, the UN, the collective will of the world's governments, largely democratic, but not exclusively, has kind of come together to deliver these big outcomes. I mean, as far as humanity goes, if we have a purpose statement, probably the closest thing is some combination of the Paris Agreement and the SDGs, right, in terms of what we're trying to do beyond profit. Um, And the Global Compact sort of exists to help deliver that purpose. But is it, it, it's it's a slightly unfair way of phrasing it, but I'm very curious to know your response. Does it exist? Oh no, does it exist? Oh no, 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 no. Does it exist because the UN has failed? Sanda, I just want you to know that Tom no longer has a UN passport, neither do I. But if he did, he would okay. have just it would lost it right yeah. now. So does it has at that it, point in time? Yeah. Has it had to come in because the UN hasn't been able to deliver on its promise? And by, by the way, Tom, if you if you say you don't believe in fairies, one of them dies. But Sanda, you have the question. <laughs> Over did, to you. Did I you think, even hear the question? I think I'm in a deep enough hole to now pass <laughs> over to you to respond. Right now, dig yourself out, dig yourself out. I'm hoping out. you're going to do that, Hugo's, actually. Yeah. Look, it's, as, as with all organizations, I believe the UN is on a continuous process of, of evolution. Mm. Look, the UN, we recently celebrated 75 years. The Global Compact recently turned 20. Mm-hmm. Now, um, this is my view. I think that at the time that we were founded in the year 2000, there was a clear recognition that business had to come to the table. Business had to come to the party. So I think we came in at the right time, right place, with the right vision. I mean, then the purpose was clear. And I think the the overall acceptance of the role that business can and should play in what the UN is trying to achieve is is, is much clearer and was much clearer defined by the forming of the Global Compact. Yeah. You know, when Kofi Annan founded it, his, he, you know, what he said was he wanted to put a human face to this global market. Hmm. And I do think, you know, timing was right, positioning was right, and uh, 20 years on, here we are, here we are. Hmm. Well, you have quite a machine there, quite a network, um, an enormous sort of potential. But no, just just before the, 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 the final question that Christiana will ask, I mean, I'm I'm still intrigued by um, just trying to get a little bit more from you about how you think. Just go go to 2050. That, that's 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 a horizon that a lot of people are looking at now. I mean, do you think business will be collaborating more with each other? Do you see closer relationships with shareholders? Do you see citizens getting more conscious in the way they purchase or invest? What? How do you see business evolving? You know, we talked about the UN evolving. How how should business evolve? Yeah, I, I think there's a, a couple of key things that. 
that will will likely happen. And I, I want to say, I think COVID has provided a great time for pause and reflection um, in terms of that. You know, I think one of the most interesting things is, you know, trust surveys show a slight decline in business and business leadership, mm-hmm. but also just an increase in, in enlightened consumerism. And, yeah. you know, that's pretty much been mm-hmm. a, a focus, I believe, of the global north. But I'm beginning to see a lot more enlightened consumerism, even in the global south. Yeah. Um, so I think the first thing I'm going to say that will change is I think that customers and consumers will have a continued but much bigger voice in shaping the longevity and the perceptions of business. I I just don't think that businesses can go around, you know, at some point in time, willy nilly doing what they please. There's a lot that puts business right now, I think, front and center of what consumers and customers will say. That's one. Second is that I don't think that in the long term, businesses are going to take things such as supply chain sustainability lightly anymore. I think we have seen so much challenge over the last eight months in terms of mm-hmm. what what it means to have a broken, a fragile supply chain. Um, you know, you could sit in a headquarters somewhere in, I don't know, somewhere. Well, let me th- let me talk about Montreal. It's where I went to uni and I had a great conversation 10 minutes ago about Montreal. So you could be sitting in Montreal and wondering and not actually knowing who your supplier is, you know, around the other end of the globe. But when a crisis hits you like now and you can't get a very small input for what you need, you will know who your supplier is. The question is, what could you have done better or different to protect your supplier or to support your supplier to be able to better weather all the adversity that comes through? Mm. You know, I recall when I was back home, um, we were able to pivot a lot of the manufacturing lines and produce um, hand sanitizer. But, you know, if you're going to put it in a bottle and put on a a pump, I think that pump component had to be imported. So we had lots of bottles of sanitizer, but no pumps. Mm. And I think that's what it means to understand yes. the fragility of a supply chain. Yeah? Because at some point, the response just slowed because you couldn't get, you know, so there's a lot of shifting and lots of innovation therefore happened. But it shows you fragility yeah. mm, in terms totally. of stuff. So I think number one, the second thing for me is that people are going to be more conscious about where the, where the supply chain lie and how to create sustainability around that. The third is, I think, because we've seen so much devastation and and challenge, uh, I'd hope that businesses are very aware that, one, you know, we will not thrive unless social justice is is addressed. And for me, social justice is, you know, we cannot go on in a world that has become increasingly unequal Mm. all the time. And for me, the social injustices for me are gender. Um, there's a statistic that it'll take 267 years to close this gender gap. I mean, who's going to be here in 267 years? But look, if any of you have a daughter, what can we promise them? Not 200 and something years, for sure now. In this generation. (laughs) No, there's nothing you can promise them. The second is, I mean, I think we've got to take a look at climate. You know, I come from a country with a fantastic ecosystem wildlife all around and and everything. And, you know, but you look at the decimation that's happening, you look at the ongoing, you know, famine, flood, destruction cycle, there's there's big issues there. So so for me, it's enlightened consumerism, looking at supply chain sustainability, and look at the fragilities that actually threaten all of us. And I just make it very practical by saying, look, what are we going to leave for our next generation? And businesses actually lie at the root of of solutions for all of those, mm. all of those elements. Well, three very, very important points. 
um, Sanda. And um, in the context of those three points, uh, we usually ask our guests at the end uh, where you lie in the um, spectrum between outrage and optimism, because we think we need both. So um, I'm assuming that you are starting a job with a lot of optimism, but would love to hear you. How do you express that? But also, what are you outraged about that we haven't done yet? Who's we? We, yeah, good question. Good question. We, we, the global society. We, the global society. We, the global society. I just need to be clear. So I am outraged that we have allowed ourselves to live in such unequal times. Mm -hmm. mm. That for me is 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 it. I think the 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 gap between the haves and the have-nots just continues to increase exponentially. And I think that we, being governments, policymakers businesses just need to look at a more inclusive model mm. for which businesses and society can coexist and thrive. Yep. There's, you, can, you can live in two worlds in, in one city. It's just, it's not possible. Mm. It's not possible. And so for me, I, I'm outraged that, that inequalities continue to, to rise and exist. And some of those inequalities then play out in issues again, like climate and gender that are just, you know, two really uh, areas that where I just put primacy in terms of urgency and, and things that we need to really take on very seriously, the collectively, so government, yes, policy, business, way. civil society, and, and all of us together. Those, those are some of the things that, that outrage And me. your optimism? Well, look, I'm optimistic that, that um, everything will get back to what is. It's a very, um, it's an odd time to be in a city that has, you know, has been ravaged but is recovering from the COVID pandemic. I'm optimistic that we will find, find solutions that will allow us to be where we were, get back on the path to recovery. And certainly if I look specifically at, at my organization, I'm just optimistic that we will be able to, through our new chapter, new strategy, provide solutions that make practical sense for business. Because we've all had collectively a moment to pause yes, as business. Definitely. And I think now more than ever, we've had the chance to really understand what the role of business has been. Because either business has been decimated by the pandemic or business has thrived through the pandemic. Absolutely. And let's take the lessons learned from both and chart a way forward. Yeah. Which kinds of businesses with which conditions have actually thrived? Um, Sanda, thank you very much. And you use the word pause. I, I just remember that at the beginning of this year, we used to think that history would look back at 2020 and, as, and recognize it as the great pause. And now as we come to the end of the year, I think we're revising our view of future history and saying history will look back at 2020 as the year of the great reset uh, because that's what we have to do. We have to reset, reset our mind, reset uh, the economy, reset uh, gender relations, et cetera. It's, it's certainly a reset um, environmental um, management in all its aspects. So here's to a great reset. Reset New York. Absolutely. Because you talk, we're talking <laughs> we about that. It all. <laughs> Sanda, we thank you so all. much. Really appreciate your taking the time. Um, and uh, welcome to New York, welcome to the UN, welcome to the Global Compact. Um, I hope you're hanging on to your UN passport because Tom has lost his. <laughs> Tom I has like lost how much you distance right? yourself from me in this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Great, thank you for having me all. It's, it's been an amazing conversation. Thank you. Great to be with you. Thank Thanks you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.
So what a privilege to have a chance to sit down with Sander. So insightful to get that sense of what she's thinking, coming into that new role. Paul, what do you leave that conversation with? Well, I love the way that she was so uh, kind of uh, <laughs> bluff and clear and honest and direct about seeing this opportunity, taking it, and her belief in the the UN Global Compact and its potential. And I do think that that comes a lot from the brilliant work she did in her previous company and her ability to see the role a company can play in transforming um, a whole sort of sector. I mean, that company giving so many people, banking facilities through their phones. It's just an extraordinary leapfrog uh, in the capability. And uh, I, I think that uh, she wants to bring out, you know, draw out, that's what educate means, I guess, in a way, to draw out from thousands of companies all that they can do to improve the quality of people's lives, which is really the heart of, I, I think, the, the kind of mission of the modern corporation. Christiana? Well, I'm excited about two things there. Um, I am excited that she brings both a corporate approach to this because honestly, that has to be done. Um, so it's I I think of the global compact as bringing business mm. rigor and discipline to the UN rather than the other way around. So wow. I'm very confident that she will be doing this. I'm also incredibly excited um, that she brings her African knowledge to this, right? Because, yeah. um, you know, let's let's be very upfront here. If there's one continent that somehow always seems to be at the end of any list, it's Africa. And the fact that she is going to make sure that Africa is at the front of the list, um, I think is very exciting and about time. No, totally. And I mean, I think the other thing which I took away from that is, I mean, as we know, Christiana, the, the, you can achieve so much at the UN, right? The UN is such um, an important institution in the world right now, but it's also to some degree kind of dehumanising because it's all about this system and this process that everybody has to sort of fit into. And what I was really impressed in her, both in the conversation we had on air and also the discussion um, prior and, and, and after, was she's really focusing on the human elements of this. And I think mm. she's really seeing that those human connections are where she can make progress. And the Global Compact, I mean, I've always had huge respect for the Global Compact, but it's a difficult job, right? Because you're sitting at that intersection of a very bureaucratic system and a very fast-moving private sector. And I feel hugely optimistic that she'll be really effective in that role. Mm. And I'm just going to throw in a, a quick word for sort of technology. Now, there are smaller companies and medium-sized companies that are part of the Global Compact, and they've all got their role. But there are enormous companies that are also part of it. And, you know, these really big global companies are probably some of the first organizations in the world with the kind of information systems that they can really understand the world as, as an integrated unit. Uh, I've spoken to many people working in huge companies who who you know, truly understand climate change because they see it manifesting, for example. I remember a big food company talking about moving their food processing plants north, 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 as it kept getting hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter. So just the idea that that fantastic, uh, you know, technological infrastructure and information systems can kind of combine and help us think about how to manage Spaceship Earth a little bit more, you know, realistically, credibly and effectively is, is something that fills me with great excitement. Now, I can't resist but to riff off Spaceship Earth and introduce our musical artist for this week. <laughs> so, uh, so sorry about this, uh, this pun, but, but Gaia is the name of the musical artist this week, which, of course, is a play, although it's spelt differently, G-A-E-Y-A, on the brilliant idea developed by James Lovelock in the 60s and 70s that the Earth is a self-regulating system. 
I don't know if I've shared with either of you, my very first job ever when I was about 21 was driving for the Hay Festival. And I used to go and pick up the authors and drive them to Hay. And so one of the fundamental pillars of my education was picking James Lovelock up in Cornwall and driving him seven hours to Hay and spending oh, seven hours what? talking to him. Yeah about the self-regulating ecosystem that was the planet and how he came up with the idea that really set the course of my life. I also picked up Goldie Horn, who I picked up in Bristol Airport, and she came out of the airport and immediately stepped into the Mercedes that was parked behind my very small car. And I had to go to her and say, uh, Miss Horn, it's not this car. She goes, you're f***ing kidding me, right? And had to get out and get into the small car. Anyway, um, back to the point. There's a beep. There's Sorry. a beep. But look, isn't that interesting that James Lovelock got you to spend the rest of your life working on climate change? Yeah, in uh, seven and- hours in a car, yeah. No, but but to be honest, you know, the discovery, uh, it's a lovely story about where he got the theory of Gaia theory from, is he was employed by NASA to look for life on Mars, and he noticed all the chemical reactions had stopped, and he looked around on Earth, and he saw the unbelievable richness of the chemical reactions constantly going on, and he realized that that was the biological, the replicating organisms, life on Earth that was causing it. Thank you. Do you know, he talked about that, actually, during our seven-hour car ride, and I've always remembered this, where he said that the insights arrive when you stop trying to think directly about them, and it's when you step back and you have spaciousness in your mind that the real jumps occur, which I think is an amazing perspective, actually, for all of us. Anyway, the other thing that James Lovelock did is he presumably inspired this musical artist to name her musical name Gaia, and this song is called Contact. This song, according to the musician not only focuses on our relationship with nature, but also a call that we need each other. She wanted this single to call out for unity rather than the separation caused by fear. Thinking that we have to fear one another, we lose the foresight of triumph via togetherness. She says we are not alone. Fear drives away our creativity, the love and compassion. We need each other and we more than ever need to show one another that we are here to support the people around us. She also says that the role of the artist during the climate emergency is that it is not only the climate, but rather the environment all over we should be focused on. She believes that all artists and creatives should use their voice to enlighten people with new ideas that can support a sustainable future. Everything that is happening on this planet is in one way or another connected to each other. And therefore, the focus does not have to be on the climate or even on the environment, but also on the social structure, to question the failing systems, or even to question the mental training that we receive as human beings. In the end, if we start healing ourselves, we will start to automatically heal the planet. This is Gaia with Contact. Thanks for being here. Bye. Bye. Closely made for deeper missions in our hearts Connecting the dots Decisions made for love to bond to deepen the faith For recognition never to fade Never to fade Spending time to reach out Crossing times that's left behind Or be denied Reaching out to feel life, reaching out to cross all the time we all will find. 
ground, calling contact, coming in and out, skin on skin, root to the ground. Contact calling, hyperspace to innovation, tracing out vital dimensions, parallel worlds, and opening minds. Span away in a second, the stars aligning now, connecting body and soul to touch, to feel, to touch, to thrive. Spending time to reach out, crossing times that's left behind will be denied. Reaching out to feel life, reaching out to cross all the time. We all Felt you from before I knew you Through the wall I sensed you coming I knew even before you were calling In this sense of full distraction Building up the interaction I see we're all seeds of creation Calling contact Coming in and down Skin on skin to the ground calling contact coming in and down skin on skin root to the ground oh calling contact coming in and down skin on skin root to the ground calling contact coming in So there you go, another episode of Outrage and Optimism. The track you just heard was Contact by Gaia with Anders Rain on piano. So Gaia filmed the live performance of this song at Vintage Loft Studio, so you can go watch it. Um, You know what's cool is we ask for a performance, an audio performance, and in this case we get an audio performance and this incredible amazing live performance, you know, filmed, perfectly mixed. It, it's just like, mm, you know, it's great. <laughs> it's amazing. They filmed it in CinemaScope, which is, you know, sounds just as cool as it looks. And it looks like a movie. The video is currently unlisted on YouTube. So in order to watch it, you have to click the link in the show notes of this episode to see it, which, you know, the show notes, they're important. There's cool stuff in there every week. Links to check out the music video, to check out Gaia, to buy and stream the music in the show notes. 
All right, on to the credits. Outrage and Optimism is a Global Optimism production, executive produced by Marina Mancilla Herman and produced by me, Clay Carnell. Uh, I missed our team meeting today, and I'm very sorry. Apologies to Sarah Law, Katie Bradford, Lara Richardson, Sophie McDonald, Freya Newman, Sarah Thomas, Sharon Johnson, and John Ward. And our hosts, the Paul Dickinson, Tom Rivet-Karnak, and Christiana Figueres. Special thanks this week to Borgiante Gomez-Badillo, Alexandra Gee, Dan Thomas, Sean Cruz, Molly Donahue, Samuel Katzen, and Abin Abraham. And of course, our special guest this week, Sanda Ojiambo. For LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, we're at Global Optimism. If you need some optimism in your feed, we got you. That's my new thing. I keep, I keep saying we got you. I think it might be my new phrase for the winter. Uh, if you're enjoying the podcast, we are so happy about that. Uh, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Write us a review. And, you know, we've been getting some really phenomenal reviews from teachers and just fans of the podcast. And, you know, we'd love to read yours. So submit yours and thank you. As we said at the beginning, Tom and Christiana's book, The Future We Choose, I actually have it in my hand here, Real Pages, Real Pages, it's up for a Goodreads Choice Award, which is amazing. Go to goodreads.com slash choice awards, click on the science and technology category, and vote for The Future We Choose. Thank you. Okay, Done. That is episode 79. For episode 80, next week, we have The Future of Fuels. It's our second episode in our investigative look into the future of transport. Uh, we have some phenomenal guests next week. I'm going to list off a couple of them here. I have them written down. The CEO of Daimler, Martin Dom, Alejandro Agag, the founder of Formula E Racing, which is like Formula One racing, but electric. Monica Araya, the transport lead for the Climate Champions. And Craig Knight, CEO of Heisen Motors, this really cool startup that's doing zero emissions, hydrogen fuel cell powered commercial vehicles. So next week, you won't want to miss it. Hit subscribe. We'll see you then. <laughs>